0: happen today and I'll just tell you right from, I believe they do happen today however miracles by definition are infrequent occurrences so I do believe they happen today. They can happen today, but not nearly as much as many people want to believe. So there's two extremes. You know, one extreme says there's no miracles. God doesn't work that way anymore. I don't buy that. The other extreme is you know, looking for a miracle around every corner. You know, everything's a miracle. Well, no. Miracles, by definition, are infrequent breaking of natural law. And in the Bible, God's people sometimes went for centuries without seeing miracles, at least no recorded miracles. And our emphasis in this series is not the hows and whats or whens of miracles, but the message of these miracles. What are they saying? What's the purpose behind them, and what do we learn from them? So today we're in Luke 5, or Mark 5, if you want to turn to that. And as I read this, I want you to be looking and asking, what is the message that's being conveyed here? What's the purpose for this? Mark 5, 1 through 13. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out And went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. I want to begin with a quiz, and I'm going to read you some case studies and give you multiple choice answers. Case study number one is Amy. Any smell, any odor, good or bad, nauseates Amy. Her eyes squint at the afternoon daylight. She turns off the radio, gulps a fistful of ibuprofen, and swears softly. Her temples pulsate with thumps of debilitating pain for the second time this month. Amy is a Christian. Like many other women in the 21st century, Amy is suffering from A, migraine headache, B, demon harassment, C, it's a female thing, or D, all of the above. Case number two, Bob. Bob catches a glance of pornographic actresses disrobing as he surfs the hotel TV. At first he wants to change the channel, but something makes him linger. He indulges, and he watches stuff he knows he should not. Later, he despises himself and is filled with massive guilt. Bob is a Christian. Like many other men, Bob is fighting, A, a psychosomatic addiction, B, the sinful nature, C, the demon of lust, or D, all the above. Case number three. When someone insults Nancy, she hears voices in her head telling her to kill the offender. She prays for this to go away, but to no avail. She still hears voices. Nancy needs to A, cut back on coffee, B, get professional help for dissociative identity disorder, C, see an exorcist, or D, all of the above. More and more Christians are embracing demons as a bona fide explanation for their problems. Christians like Amy, Bob, and Nancy have sought help from deliverance ministry, spiritual warfare counselors, and exorcists, And some have claimed success. Besides headaches, addiction to porn, and hearing voices, deliverance manuals list alcoholism, chronic fatigue syndrome, nightmares, persistent anger, and jealousy among the possible symptoms of demonization. One minister in a church in Indiana where they practice deliverance says that it often takes up to 25 minutes of prayer to remove a spirit at which point the person possessed starts screeching, cackling, convulsing, howling, swearing, and coming out through their victim's air passages as vomit. Each prayer partner is equipped with a roll of paper towels so that when the demons come out, the absorbent sheets prevent the vomit from staining the church carpet. They often wrestle to the floor with the demonized victim. The minister says, we sweat, we wrestle, we get spit on. What do you think about demon possession Does it occur today? It's obvious in Jesus' day that there were demons that possessed people, but does it happen today? And if it does, how do we know if someone is possessed? If someone is filled with jealous hatred, is that a demon? Or anger? Or they have a problem with pornography or drugs? Is there some evil force within that person causing that? Down through history, there have been accounts of demon possession and exorcisms. Really, from the time of Jesus up until about the medieval days, it was actually, we have several accounts. But then, in the past few hundred years, not quite as much. One historian writes that the devil seemed to take a plunge after the 1692 witch trials, only to reemerge within the past 40 years. So, it was prevalent for several centuries up to medieval time, then took a dip, and now the last 40 years, we've seen a rise in it again. Prior to 1970, exorcisms was essentially dead. You didn't hear about demon possession. But in the early to mid-70s, large numbers of Americans, many of them middle class, became convinced that they or their loved ones were suffering from demonic affliction. There are now anywhere from 600 to 2,000 deliverance ministries in existence today. So what's going on? Obviously, demonic activity was very evident during the time of Jesus, which makes sense. When God sends his son, the devil's going to react, and these legions become active. But what about today? Why the increase of demon possession in the past four decades? One explanation is the rising interest in spiritual phenomena. People are yearning for spiritual experience and spiritual reality and yearning for something beyond. They know there has to be more to life than this secular, you know physical existence so this yearning for spiritual reality opens the door for spiritual forces another possible reason is our culture's increasing rejection of the god of the bible now most people believe in god last i heard it's still about 86 percent of americans believe in god but not the biblical god necessarily they believe in a god but it does not necessarily resemble the god of the bible and the farther a culture gets from god the more we would expect to see demonic activity Another possible reason is we want quick solutions to our problems. Uh, Exorcism promises to be immediately and dramatically effective. It's a lot easier to cast out the demon of anger than to have to go through the long, hard struggle of conquering it. You know, voila, it's gone. I'm free of anger. Wouldn't that be nice? Or I'm free of my addiction, you know, just just like that. Exorcism offers quick solutions to our problems, and and that's appealing. And then another possible reason, demonology gets us off the moral hook. It's not my fault I'm acting this way. It's that demon of anger. The devil made me do it. We live in an age where no one wants to take responsibility. So to blame a demon or some other power is quite attractive. I'm not responsible. I'm a victim here. I'm not going to deal with demon possession overseas. It, there's no doubt it happens. Missionaries report that it happens. But I want to talk about specifically in our culture, in our setting, what would you make of it? Is anyone in Mount Pulaski possessed? Don't raise your hand, okay? And I won't even ask about Chestnut. It's obvious. Um, (laughs) Let me give you my opinion up front on this. Based on what I have read and, and researched on this, demon possession in our culture is rare, but on the increase. Those who've studied this closely generally are not convinced that demon possession is widespread in the U.S. One man said he's been to 50 exorcisms and is not convinced that any of them were really possessed. Let's go back to Mark 5. What do we learn about demons from from this? First of all, demons are spirit beings, we see in Mark 5. They're not physical. They don't have bodies. Some believe they're fallen angels. Jude 6 refers to angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but... Uh, abandoned their own home. This view says that one time demons were angels uh, of God and they rebelled against God uh, with Satan and were thrown out of heaven. Others say they are the spirits of the wicked dead. Jewish historians Josephus and Philo made that claim. Some of the Christian fathers from the first centuries of the church claimed that. I'm not sure we can know for sure. I'm not sure it matters that much. All we know is they did exist, they were real, and they are spirit beings, they're not physical. Number two, second thing we learned, demons can inhabit living bodies. Here they inhabit a man and then some pigs. There was a man who came to a preacher, true story. He said, my wife and I are both Christians, but she's having some problems. Do you believe in demons? The preacher said, yes. The man explained, well, several months ago we went to a spiritualist church where we were encouraged to pray to receive spirit guides to help direct our lives. I didn't pray for any, but my wife did. She prayed for a spirit guide, and she hasn't been the same since. Sometimes as there's a different person inside her. Her voice changes. Her face contorts. She has an aversion to the things of God. Our marriage is falling apart. She won't go back to our church. And it all came to a head last night. While we were arguing, she walked into the hallway, turned slowly, and said with a sneer, Don't you know who we are? Her voice rose to a scream, and she repeated, Don't you know who we are? And the man was shaking as he was telling the preacher. Demon possession? How do we know? We say of a two-year-old, he's a little demon. Well, what do you base that on? Well, here's what an exorcist in Chicago who uh, says he looks for four criteria for demon possession. Number one, superhuman powers. I don't have this on your outline. You may want to write it down anyway. Superhuman powers or physical abilities. In our text, he can break the chains, okay, okay? extraordinary physical power. A second thing he looks for, criteria, is a fierce aversion to holy things, like a cross or anything associated with Jesus. And again, we see this in our text. The demons are afraid of Jesus. They beg not to be tortured. They know that he is more powerful than they. So fierce aversion to holy things. Third, a knowledge of hidden things. Since they are supernatural beings, it makes sense that they would know some things we don't. And we saw this two weeks ago, and we see it in our text again, that they know who Jesus is, whereas the people are still unsure. So they know some hidden things. And then number four, his fourth criteria, is the use of languages one has never learned. For instance, someone who begins to speak in medieval Latin. So those are the four criteria one exorcist looks for, and three of those four fit the New Testament counts of demon possession. Come to think of it, some of those describe a lot of two year olds, right? Uh, these instances, though, are very rare, according to this exorcist. He said he's performed only two exorcisms in two years. Over 95% of people who ask him for an exorcism don't qualify. Here's another thing we learn from our text Demons have destructive power, obviously. This man is a living terror here in Mark. He's. Worse than a two year old. <laughs> Physically, no one can subdue him. He breaks his chains. He cuts himself with stones. He's living among the graves, you know, the tombs. And then when they enter the pigs, they go into a mad, suicidal rush into the sea. So, demons seek to injure and destroy those whom they possess, destructive power. And they also fear Jesus. We see that here. They're terrified of him. They say, Do not torture us. What are they afraid of? Don't throw us out of the area. What, what, what's Jesus going to do then? What, what's this torture? Well, according to Jewish literature, the demons know that eventually they will be tormented at the time of final judgment. They know that. And these demons, some speculate, are afraid that with Jesus coming, they think judgment is near. The kingdom has arrived and the demons know that their end is imminent. Over in Luke 8, we have the same account and the demons plead with Jesus. They say, don't send us to the abyss. So the demons know that their eventual destiny is hell. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus said, Hell is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. They know their torture is coming. So the devil and his angel agents will be tormented forever and ever. Now, hell, by the way, was not prepared with people in mind. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. But people will go there because they've chosen to go there, which is not what God intended. That's another subject we'll talk about sometime. Where do demons reside right now, today? This is a little tougher, but here's one clue, at least in Scripture. Apparently, some are confined. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19 talks about spirits in prison. And 2 Peter 2, 4 says, But God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell. The word there is Tartarus putting them in glooming dungeons to be held for judgment. So some demons apparently are confined to this place called Tartarus, which apparently is a holding place for judgment. Perhaps the demons in our text are afraid that Jesus is going to send them back to Tartarus. And maybe that's why they want to go into a herd of pigs. It would be better to be a drowned pig than to go back to that place, Tartarus. Just, Just a thought. Tartarus is apparently an awful place where the demons go to await judgment, a preview of hell. There's also some indication that it'll be the same for unbelievers and some nominal believers. When Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man goes to a place of torment and suffers unbearable thirst and pain. Maybe that was Tartarus. Now, he believed in God. He he was a believer in Abraham, but he still goes to torment. So this ought to be a, a warning for the church. He believes, but he was nominal and even selfish and goes to torment. What should be our approach to demons? We see this demonic activity in the Bible, and I believe there's some of it today. What should be our attitude and thinking? Number one, contact with the spirit world is forbidden. Both in the Old Testament and New Testament, it's clear about avoiding mediums, diviners, channelers, and spirit guides. When I was in college, Ouija boards were popular. Remember those? And then Dungeons and Dragons. And there were some weird, kind of bizarre things happening on campus. And students started dabbling in things. And it uh, it was a Christian college. So I'd never go to Palm Reader's. I never go to people who think they can predict the future. I just stay away from them. Those are things that are not of God. Many video games, a lot of music, have some connections with the demonic. Movie titles over the past four decades, like Devil Times Five, The Possessed, The Exorcist, Insidious, The Devil's Rock, Night of the Demons, Sinister, The Right, My Demon Lover, The Devil's Advocate, Bedazzled, Hellboy, Evil Dead, The Conjuring, TV shows like Angel and Charmed and Supernatural and Vampire Diaries. Most believe that the entertainment industry has stimulated the market for how about Jerry Springer? Is that show possessed? There seems to be a connection between cultural depravity and the rise of demonic activity. As the culture slides into more moral relativism and secularism, demonic powers seem to be more open and more active, and we got to stay away. Uh, the Bible's very clear stay away from that stuff. Number two, be aware but don't be obsessed. Our focus is on Jesus, not on Satan. So I don't preach on this demonic stuff very often. God wants us to know something about the demons and how they operate. He wants us to know that there are evil forces and evil powers all around us. But God also shields a lot of that information from us. And and some people get obsessed with the demonic, which makes them even more vulnerable, I believe. And I'll tell you, I felt even dark and a little dirty preparing this sermon. Number three, put on the spiritual armor of God. Our battle is not flesh and blood, that's one of the main messages from this miracle. Our battle is not physical, it's spiritual. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12 says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now that says about as clear as, is there, as it can be, there are spiritual forces. And then... Paul talks about putting on truth and prayer and the Holy Spirit and righteousness and and the Bible, the word, faith. Uh, In other words, have a healthy, loving relationship with Jesus because we're in a war and we need to be growing in our faith and understanding of the word and truth and prayer is a powerful force. Be prepared spiritually. Put on the armor of God. And number four, respect the dark power of sin. When it comes down to it, The more sin gets hold of our life, the more we drift away from Jesus, the more the evil one gets a foothold in us. And that's why we need uh, the armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness and those things. Michael Easton was a 54-year-old businessman, and he he was converted to Christ, but that did not stop him from multi-partner sexuality, alcoholism, and a drug habit. True story again. He couldn't overcome these habits, so he attended a deliverance meeting And during the 30 minutes, the minister prayed for Easton. Evil spirits oozed out of him, and I'm going to quote this, deep, heavy coughing, lots of tears, things coming out of his nose that came out of his stomach. It's just as if a faucet was turned on. And it says that since that day, 18 years ago, Easton has not engaged in any perverted sexual acts. He has stopped using drugs and hasn't touched alcohol. So there's a connection between sin and demonic activity. Well, duh. That makes sense. And the more we indulge it, the more vulnerable we become to these powers. Do you believe any of this? I mean, do you believe in the existence of supernatural beings? Believe in final judgment where evil is dealt with? I got to thinking and I thought, if I really believe this, how would it change my life? How would it change my thinking? And what I'd like you to do, I'm giving you an assignment today. I want you to go home sometime today, take out a piece of paper, and on your sermon notes or maybe a separate piece of paper, And write down, if I believe this and then complete it, how would I live? How would I think? Here's my list. If I really believe this, if I really believe demons are hovering over this congregation at this minute minute, and and trying to infiltrate your mind and my mind and and my family and my life and my church and my friends, if I believed in hell and Tartarus and all these powers, number one, I would make sure I was right with Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about church membership or baptism either. I would make sure that I love him as best I can with all my heart and soul and mind and strength. I would quit playing games with my Christianity. I would get off the fence. If I really believe this, I would strive toward giving my whole being over to him. I would quit trying to live for 13 different priorities in my life and make him number one. No question. If this stuff is true, I run to Jesus. And I say, whatever you want, Jesus, I'll do it because I need you. If I believe this, number two, I would pray and read the Bible with all my might. I know I cannot conquer this power, but Jesus can. I need supernatural wisdom to counter the supernatural deceit because I will be deceived by him. I need supernatural strength to counteract the supernatural attacks. I will rely on God's word and his strength. I cannot start the day without involving Jesus from the beginning because I know the battle belongs to the Lord and I cannot do it. Ephesians 6 says, Do this so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. If I believe this, I would depend on God's people. I would make sure that I was around other people who are spiritually strong. I want a healthy eldership and I want a strong staff that are men and women of prayer. I want biblical teaching in Sunday school and accountability in small groups because I need fellowship and I cannot do it on my own. Biblical fellowship, by the way, is not coffee and donuts. It's genuine, loving, deep relationships. And I would connect with a few other strong believers if I believed this was true. If I believed this, I would be intimately involved with other Christians, not just Sunday morning only attendance. If I believe this, number four, I would be highly evangelistic. When the rich man went to his torment, I don't know if you remember that story. First thing he did, he begged God to send someone to tell his relatives. Warn my family. All of a sudden, once he went to torment he gets an evangelistic fervor. It's remarkable what one step into hell can do to your priorities. If I believe this, I would do whatever it takes to warn others and to win them to Jesus. We'd get rid of silly traditions in the church so the church can be healthy and evangelize the lost. If I really believe this, evangelism would be a priority. And number five, if I believe this, I would do all I can to teach my children to love Jesus Christ. I would evangelize my family. I want them more than anything else to love God and his church. And I would not let my kids determine whether they go to church or not. Well, little Johnny doesn't feel like going to church today. I'm not going to let little Johnny make that decision if I believe this because the stakes are too high. I don't let him make the decision about going to school or whether to dress warmly in the winter or whether to brush his teeth. And I'm certainly not going to let him make eternal decisions at the age of six. If I believe this, I would not have a child run home. I would have a Christ-led home. If I believed this, I'd be joyful about having my kids in church. I'd be positive about their church. I'd talk to my kids about their eternal matters, and I would talk about how life is best in Christ Jesus. You know, I just want to pray, God, open our eyes and, and look at this text and wake us up and remove the cataract so we can see these powers that are around us. If I really believe this, I would not allow any kind of demonic entertainment into my home or into my mind. I want you to go home, take a piece of paper. If I really believe this, I would. And then do it. Let's pray. Lord, this is a bizarre, amazing story. Multiple demons possessing a man who cuts himself and breaks chains, and then inhabiting pigs that drown themselves. And I pray that we will see what this miracle wants us to see, that there are powers beyond us, more powerful than any of us, but that we'll also see that there's a power above these powers that only you possess. So make us a church of prayer, a church of the Holy Spirit, a church of the Word and genuine fellowship, a church that seeks righteousness, the things that will quench the fiery darts of the evil one. Most of all, may we be a church of Jesus that lives in and for him. And it is in his name that we worship and we live and we pray. Amen.